Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the letter of Paul to the Colossians. We'll study the instruction of the Apostle Paul to be aware of false teaching about how to earn our salvation and that our salvation is by God's grace alone, through our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, not through any works or observance of religious rituals or sacraments. There's nothing we can do or contribute to earn our salvation other than to recognize we are sinners who need a Savior and place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the letter of Paul to the Colossians chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Okay, why don't we get started with prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this group. I thank you for the opportunity for us to gather together and study your word. And as we read today and study what Paul is addressing in terms of false teaching, I'm just so thankful that you've given us your son and our salvation is solely on our faith that we have in him. There isn't anything that we can do to contribute to our salvation. It's not about us trying to do things to earn our way or following religious traditions that earn us our way. It is solely by our faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and we are so thankful for that gift that you've extended to us. So as we study today, just open our hearts and minds to your word. Teach us what we need to learn and help us apply it in our life so that we can continue to grow in our faith and grow in our personal relationship with you and become the people that you want us to be. As you speak through me and anyone else who speaks up today, let it be your word not our words, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to pick up where we left off last time. We're in Colossians chapter 2, and I'll just jump right in. It says in verse 1, and again, this is Paul writing, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So remember, Paul is writing this from prison. He's in prison in Rome. He's in prison because of his faith. And he says that he is having a great struggle. That word, when you go look at the original language, it's actually the word that we get for agony. So he's in agony. He's going through a great struggle on behalf of these Christians at the church in Colossae. And he's saying that it's on their behalf that he has this struggle, that he's worrying. He loved the entire church body. And you can see that it's not just the people that he knew. He said he is struggling even for those who he has not personally seen. He loved them all. He continues on in verse 2. What is he struggling with? He is struggling because he wants their hearts to become encouraged, strengthened. It always comes back to our heart. Our heart is strengthened by being filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's going to talk about a heart that is strengthened then has the capacity to love others. Let me show you a couple of verses on the heart, how important our heart is in our faith. I'm going to first take you over to Psalm 26.2. And it says, Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. It's our heart that is just a mess that we have to change. It's not what we do on the outside. It's not religious things. It's not traditions and what have you. It's our heart. And we should constantly ask God to help us through the power of the Holy Spirit 
to change our hearts into the people that he wants us to be because our hearts are a mess. Let me show you another one while I'm in Psalms. Let me go over to Psalm 139. In these two Psalms that I'm referring you today, these are great prayers that we can include in our prayers all the time. Psalm 139, I'll begin in verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. So this Psalm 139, it's a Psalm of David. And David is saying that he can become deceived himself, but God knows his heart. God knows his heart well. And so David is saying, God, search me, lead me to you and away from my sinful ways. That's what David's praying, and that's what we should pray. Go on over to Proverbs. I'm going to show you one proverb, Proverbs 4.23. That's just a little bit further over to the right. And it says, watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. So it is. It's all about our heart. That's what Jesus wants. He wants our heart. He doesn't want us just doing a bunch of things. He wants our heart. He wants us to love him. He wants us to love God, and he wants us to love others. And I'll show you one more passage. I'm going to go over to the New Testament, Ephesians. So if you've got your finger in Colossians, it's just a few books over to the left just on the other side of Philippians, and I'm going to take us to Ephesians 3. Let me start in verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, this again is Paul writing, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul is asking this on behalf of believers that our hearts would be changed and that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit and strengthened so that we can grow in our personal relationship with the Lord. I'm going back over to Colossians now, picking back up. Paul is saying that he wants their hearts to be strengthened, encouraged, and he continues on in verse 2, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance that full assurance is assurance of salvation or understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself. So what is he saying here? Knit together in love. He wants us united in the body of Christ. Let me show you a couple of verses on that. I'm going to go over to the left, and today I'm going to be skipping around a lot. I've got a lot of other scripture I want to show you that just, I think, brings even further light to what Paul's talking about. I'm going to go to John chapter 17. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth gospel. And I'm going to jump in John 17, verse 20. And this is Jesus talking. Actually, let me begin in verse 14. This is Jesus. He's actually praying to the Father. He says, I've given them thy word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's talking about us as believers. 
He says, I do not ask you, he's talking to the Father, to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one, meaning Satan. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, meaning us as believers, in the truth. Your word is truth. The Father's word is truth. As you did send me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, talking about probably the apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word, meaning all of us as believers, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, and they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me, and you did love them even as you did love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you did love me before the foundation of the world. So this is Jesus praying to the Father. I'm going back over to Colossians, as Paul's describing, that we be knitted together in love, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would all be one. We would be united in the body of Christ. And let me show you one other verse. Just go over to the left from Colossians into Philippians. That's the book just before where we are. And I'm going to show you Philippians 2, begin in verse 2. And it says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each one of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this is what Paul is calling us to do. I'm back over in Colossians. He wants us to be knitted together in love for one another. When we come together like that and we have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, Paul's saying we can then have the assurance of our salvation. We'll then have this understanding. We'll be able to apply biblical principles to our life And what Paul is talking about is that Christ is sufficient. This knowledge of God's mystery, that mystery is that Christ and what he has done on our behalf and done for us, that Jesus Christ is God and what he has done for us is sufficient for our salvation. You don't need anything more. All you need is Jesus. He says in verse 3, "...in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge." Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. So now Paul's going to begin to address some of the false teaching that was out there. 
there were false teachers who were trying to attack Christ by saying that either he wasn't really God, he wasn't deity, or they were trying to add things, and they were saying that it takes more than just faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's not sufficient. You've got to do a bunch of things in order to earn your salvation. And there's religions today that are that way. That Yeah, you have to believe in Christ, but you've got to do all these things. You've got to do these religious rituals that have been handed down. You've got to do these various sacraments, or you won't ever be able to go to heaven. That's not biblical. What Paul is saying here is that, and we're going to read on, that faith in Jesus Christ alone is sufficient. He says in verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, meaning he wasn't there, he was in prison in Rome, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. What Paul is saying is he's absent from them, but he is rejoicing to see that they are maintaining their faith even in the face of these false teachers attacking them and trying to get them to believe something other than the gospel that Paul had preached to them. Verse 6, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And what Paul's talking about there is daily conduct. He's saying, don't waver because of this other teaching. Let me show you a verse on that. I'm going to go over to the epistle of John. That's not the gospel of John. 1 John 2.6. It's back just before Revelation. And I'll just go over there for you real quick. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So what Paul is saying and John is saying here is, we should live our lives just like Jesus did. Jesus lived his life obedient to the Father, and we should do the same thing. Okay, I'm back over in Colossians. I'm in verse 7. We've been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So because we have the Holy Spirit, we should be rooted in Christ that's the source of our spiritual nourishment. And the Holy Spirit should continue to build us up and help us mature in our faith so that it is well established. Let me show you one verse on that real quick. I'm going to just go over to the right to 2 Peter 3. It's just a few books over to the right on the other side of Hebrews. If you just go to the right and pass Hebrews, you'll eventually get to Peter. 2 Peter 3, verse 18, it says... But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So we should continue to grow in our faith. That's what he's talking about, being built up in him, being established in our faith. And we do that through prayer. We do that through studying the Word, studying the Bible, and through things like this Bible study. But then what he's saying is as we see we're being built up, we should overflow with gratitude. We should have a grateful heart because of our better understanding now of what God has given us, what he has done for us. So let me show you a verse in Hebrews. I'll just go over there real quick. Hebrews 13, verse 15. It says, through him, meaning Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. 
So we should continually praise Jesus for what he's done. We should be so thankful because we were separated from God because of our sin. And yet Jesus came and provided a path for us to reconcile with God. And we should be so thankful. Paul says that we should be overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. That's like becoming a prisoner. No one should take us captive through philosophy or empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So here, Paul is directly addressing the false teaching of these false teachers. He's saying it's empty deceptions, it's deceit, it's fraud. We've talked about this, how the Jews had added all kinds of additional things to the law that had been handed down. And now some of these false teachers were telling the Christians that they had to do a lot of the old Jewish traditions in addition to placing their faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved, which is not biblical at all. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Let me take you over to Romans. Go back over to the left. Romans is just after the Gospels, after Acts. Then you'll get to Romans, and I'm going to go to Romans 1. Let me jump in at verse 21, and this is talking about philosophy and worldly teaching. It says in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools." So there's all kinds of philosophy out there and all kinds of worldly teaching. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived by that. Don't be deceived by the culture and the teaching of the culture. It's foolishness. I'm back over in Colossians. You can see in verse 8 where we're reading. He says, don't be fooled or deceived by the tradition of men or the principles of the world. We should be driven by what we read in God's word. It's all about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone. And some of this even, you could say, is talking about some of the religions and denominations that are out there today that are adding things to what's in the Bible. Or they're using their black highlighters on the passages that they say don't apply anymore, that the culture has changed since the time that parts of the Bible were written. And so we have to ignore those or view those passages differently today. That's not biblical. The Bible says don't add to or take away from anything that's in the Bible. You know, you even have Catholicism where the popes have added a number of things to what is in the Bible. And Paul's saying that it's only what we are told in this Bible, and it's all about Jesus Christ. It's not doing a bunch of things in addition to placing our faith in Jesus Christ. That's not biblical. And what some of the false teachers were teaching at this time, as I mentioned, they were not only saying that Jesus was not God, they were saying that he was not the source of truth. Let me show you a couple of verses on that. First, I'll go over to Matthew 7:15, first gospel, and it says, Beware of the false prophets, this is Jesus talking, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus was even warning us that there would be people who would be teaching us false things. And then let's go over to Acts. Just keep going to the right from Matthew. I'm going to go to Acts 
chapter 20, and I'm going to begin in verse 29. And this is Paul talking. He's going to be warning people as well about false teachers. He says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, that's from within our own churches, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. That's Paul talking. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So the word and God's grace, that will build us up. That is what is part of the sanctification process that we go through once we place our faith in Jesus Christ. But we are to remain faithful to what's in the Bible and not add to it that Christ is sufficient. That's what Paul's talking about. So let me go back over to Colossians, and he's going to expand on that. First, he tells us that we shouldn't be taken captive through all these false teachings. He says in verse 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So again, he's addressing the false teachers who were saying Jesus wasn't God. And what Paul is saying is Jesus is God. He is full deity and he is sufficient for us. He alone has the power to save. There were some at that time that thought God could never take on the body of a human because the body of a human was so evil. And they were saying that there's no way that Jesus Christ could be God because the body is so evil. But Paul's saying he is God and he is above all created beings. Even angels will see him say. So he says in verse 10, And in him, meaning Jesus, you have been made complete and he is the head over all rule and authority. So he is fully God, is what he's saying. And through Jesus, we have been made complete. So his fullness is imparted to us. It makes us spiritually complete, lacking in nothing. So in verse 10, what Paul is saying is that we are complete in Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else. There's nothing more we need to add to it. We are complete in Jesus Christ. Now, in verses 11 through 15, he's going to give us three aspects of that full completion. He's going to say, number one, we're complete in our salvation. Number two, we're complete in the forgiveness of our sins. And number three, we're complete in our victory, that we are assured of our eternal life with Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 11, Paul's now going to refer to two familiar rituals to show that those rituals don't give us our salvation. Those rituals are demonstrations of the spiritual realities of our faith, but the rituals themselves do not give us our salvation. So let's look at these examples. Verse 11, and in him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So Paul is saying Christians don't need physical circumcision. We are spiritually complete with Jesus Christ. We have become spiritually circumcised. And you know, it's interesting that even with all that science continues to discover, there's never been a scientific discovery that has figured out a cure for sin. 
And what Paul is saying is Christ is sufficient and Christ is the only way to get forgiveness of sins. The Judaizers, the people who were saying that, yes, you had to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also had to do various religious things that the Jewish people had done in the past, they were saying that circumcision was also a requirement in order to be saved. And what Paul is saying is, no, you don't need to be circumcised physically. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you became spiritually circumcised. And if you recall, Abraham was declared righteous by God many, many years. I think it was like around 14 years before he ever even became circumcised. You can look at that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Circumcision was just an outward symbol of Abraham's need to be cleansed from sin. That's what circumcision was. It was removing that. It was to show that you were a sinner and you needed to be cleansed of that sin. And through Christ Jesus, we are spiritually circumcised. We don't have to have a physical circumcision. Verse 12, Paul says, Having been buried with him, Jesus, in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So this baptism he's talking about, this is a spiritual baptism. This is not water baptism. But he's referring to, again, now the ritual of baptism. And he's saying that we will be raised up with him. Why? Because we went and got water baptized? No. And unlike what some religions teach, the Catholics believe you can't go to heaven without being baptized. What Paul is saying is, no, we are spiritually baptized in him through our faith, solely through our faith. And God will then raise us from the dead because of our faith. It's through God's power and the working of what Jesus has done for us, not anything that we do. Just to demonstrate, baptism isn't a requirement to go to heaven. If you recall, the two criminals that were on crosses on each side of Jesus at Jesus' crucifixion, one criminal was giving Jesus a hard time and mocking him, and the other one said, you need to be quiet. Jesus has done nothing wrong and turned to Jesus and said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That guy didn't get off the cross and go get baptized. Jesus promised he would be in heaven with him that day. It was a deathbed confession, but he didn't go get baptized. Baptize is something we're commanded to do, and we should all do it after we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We are then commanded to go and get baptized, which means immersed. The word that we get baptism from means to be submerged, immersed. It doesn't mean sprinkled. I was sprinkled as a small infant, having grown up Catholic in my family, but that's not baptism. You won't see any sprinkling of infants in the Bible at all. And I would encourage each of you, if you haven't been baptized and anyone listening beyond here, if you haven't been baptized and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you need to go do that, not to gain salvation, but do it because Jesus told you to go do it. That's what we're instructed to go do, and it's an outward profession of the change that has happened to us on the inside. Much like I wear a wedding ring to show that I am married and I love my wife, Dare, immensely. That's what this ring symbolizes, and that's what our baptism symbolizes. Okay, so let's go back to the text. 
I want to show you a couple of verses that will help bring some more of this verse 12 out. I'm going to go back over to Romans. I'll just go over there real quick for us. Romans 10, just going to read two verses here to you. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So it's the condition of your heart. It isn't just stating something. If in your heart you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will be saved. It doesn't say, and oh, by the way, you need to go find a priest, you need to get baptized, you need to do this, you need to do that. No, it is only by our faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So let's go back over to Colossians, and Paul's going to talk about our sin. He says in verse 13, And when you were dead in your transgressions, okay, so we weren't just sick, we were dead. I'm going to show you a couple of verses in Ephesians. If you'll go over there with me, Ephesians, it's over to the left from Colossians. Go over to Ephesians 2. We're going to spend some time in Ephesians here when we're studying these next couple of verses. Ephesians 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Because of our sin, we were dead. We were sentenced to eternal separation from God because of our sin. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. That's who we were. We weren't just sick. Before God's grace, we were dead. We were separated from God because of our rebellion and our sin. Keep your finger in Ephesians and go back over to Colossians. So Paul's saying here, And when you were dead in your transgressions, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, so we had this spiritual death, it says, he made you alive together with him, talking about Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So now go back over to Ephesians and let's look at Ephesians 2 verse 8. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So just like I'm saying, we've been saved by grace. It's God's gift to us and it's through our faith. It isn't from anything else. And if that's not clear enough for you, look at verse 9. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. So there's nothing we can do to contribute to our salvation. It is by our faith, which our faith is also a gift from God. It isn't from anything that we've done. It isn't because we go to church. It isn't because we go to communion. It isn't because we've been baptized. It is solely on the basis of our faith. It's by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul is talking about. Now go back over to Colossians. You'll see this is exactly what Paul's saying in verse 13. Let me just pick that back up again. And when you were dead in your transgressions in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. 
So this certificate of debt, that was the bill that we owed, but we've done nothing to earn it. We have been forgiven solely through the work of Jesus Christ, and our debt has been canceled out. All our violations of God's laws, all his commandments that we violated, it's all been canceled. We had enough against us to condemn us to hell. Let me show you, if you'll just go one book before Ephesians, you'll get to Galatians. I'll just go over there and read that to you real quick. It's Galatians 3.10, which says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. So we're cursed because nobody can obey all the law. So we're cursed. That's what it says in the Bible. The only one who was able to do it all perfectly was Jesus Christ. And so God solved our problem. It's grace through faith, as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I'm going to show you a couple of Psalms. I'm going to show you Psalm 32, 1. It says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. So our sin, it separated us from God. But what David is saying here in this psalm is that our sin has been covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Iniquity means corruption, but we should be happy in that God has covered our sin by his grace, nothing that we did to contribute to it. And as Paul is talking about in Colossians, in Colossians 14, canceling out our certificate of debt, let me show you another great psalm that illustrates what that cancellation looks like. I'm going to stay in Psalms and go over to Psalm 103. And being a sailor, I love this. I'm in Psalm 103, verse 12. It says, As far as the east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know what that means? And again, this was written before anyone knew the earth was round. But think about it. It doesn't say as far as north is from south, because if you think about it, if you go north, eventually you'll get to where you're not going north anymore. You'll begin going south. Or if you go south, eventually you won't be going south anymore. You'll be going north. But east to west, if you head out going east... You'll never finish going east. You'll continue to go east. You can go around and around and around the world. You'll keep going east. Or if you head out west, you'll keep going west forever. So to say as far as the east is from west is how far he's removed our transgressions, our sin, that means it's infinite. That means God will not remember our sin as believers. It's fascinating. How did David know this when he wrote this psalm? How did he know that? Well, he got it from God. And then let me show you one more. I'm going to go over to Titus, which is to the right of Colossians before Hebrews. And I'm going to go to Titus 3, and I'm going to begin in verse 3. It says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, Verse 4, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, so not as a result of anything that we might even think were good deeds, 
not as a result of doing any religious traditions or sacraments or anything like that. It's not a result of doing anything like that. It says, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, you see that? By his grace, it's a gift, it's given to us. We might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So again, here's another place. It isn't because of any of our deeds. It isn't because of anything we've done. Paul is explaining to us that our faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient. It alone saves us. Let's go back over to Colossians 2, and we'll pick up where I left off, verse 15. When he, being Jesus, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So the Romans had actually put the charges against Jesus Christ on the cross, wrote it on a sign and nailed it to the cross. It said, King of the Jews. But what this is saying, Paul's telling the Colossians, that it's foolish to worship angels. Some of them were praying to angels and others. And what Paul is saying is that Christ is the supreme. It is Christ we should pray to and worship, that we should worship Jesus Christ only. He is sufficient. He is higher than the other rulers, possibly meaning the Roman rulers, the Jewish leaders, the authorities. He may be talking about Satan and other fallen angels that Jesus Christ is God. He is deity. And why would we pray to anyone else? Why would we pray to other saints? Why would we pray to Mary when we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that he is sufficient? He is the one that intercedes for us. We don't need to pray to others to intercede for us when we can pray to Jesus Christ, who is there to intercede for us directly with God the Father. And when he rose from the dead, he made a public display of them. He triumphed over death. He triumphed over Satan. I'll show you a couple of verses on that. First, I'll go back over to Romans, Romans 8, and I'll jump in at verse 37. It says, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus Christ gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to be able to conquer all these things and gives us our eternal life. That's what we're assured of. And then I'll show you one more, Hebrews 2.14. I'll go back over to the right. It says, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus Christ, he didn't destroy Satan, but he renders Satan powerless so that Christ could rise from the dead and return to the right hand of the Father. So that's what Paul is talking about here that Jesus overcame and triumphed over Satan. So now Paul is going to address false teaching. He's going to address false teaching about legalism and asceticism, which is basically poverty and physical deprivation as a way to get right with God. When you really think about legalism, it's the religion of basically human achievement. 
It's trying to get right with God using man-made rules to give you your salvation. And so that's what he's going to talk about now. Verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. So what Paul's saying is you don't have to follow these Jewish dietary and ceremonial laws. Those don't apply anymore. These were all for the Jews in the Old Covenant, and they were there to set the Jewish people apart from others and point people towards the one true God. We're not under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant now. The observance of the Sabbath even ended with Christ's resurrection. Our rest now is to come from relying on God rather than relying on ourselves. And Paul's saying that our belief in Jesus Christ is what gives us our salvation not observing a bunch of religious traditions, a bunch of religious rituals. That's not where we get our salvation. It is from Christ alone is what he's saying. And in terms of this Sabbath day, because I do hear people from time to time saying, you know, it's my Sabbath. I'm respecting the Sabbath. Even Christians from time to time say that, or they actually view the Sabbath as Sunday, the day that they worship. That's not biblical. Let me show you in Romans. I'll go back over to Romans, and I'm going to go to chapter 14, and I'll jump in at verse 5. It says, One man regards one day above another, sort of like one day is a holy day, and another one views it a different day. It says, Another one regards every day alike. So every day is a day made by God that allows us to be here, and so every day should be treated like a holy day says, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So what this is saying is choose it on the basis of your own convictions before God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whatever we do, do it for the glory of God. So the New Testament doesn't command Sabbath observance. It allows freedom of which day is to be observed, or none at all. The only requirement is that whatever position that you take, it is to glorify God. And no believer has the right to impose their view on others, is what this is saying here. The early Christians, they chose Sunday as their day of worship. It was the day that Christ rose from the dead And that is how the early church approached it. But we shouldn't ever call that the Christian Sabbath. There's no such thing in Scripture. So let's go back over to Colossians, and we'll pick up where we left off, verse 17. Things which are mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So a shadow has no reality. Our focus is to be on Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices foretold of Jesus coming to save us and to give us eternal life. Verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement in the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So he's saying, don't let people keep defrauding you by trying to tell you that you've got to have physical deprivation perhaps trying to appear humble when it's driven by your own pride, doing something and then sort of saying, oh, look at me, look how humble I am. 
I'm humiliating myself. And he's also saying to not worship angels. Don't worship anybody other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is certainly counter to some of the Catholic worship practices and praying to saints and things of that nature. They are not mediators for us. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, and Scripture says that Jesus Christ is our mediator. That's who we should pray to. We should pray to the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, who makes it all possible for us to approach the Father. That's what we're instructed to do. Verse 19, And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. He's referring to these people who were saying they had visions or they were worshiping angels. They weren't holding fast to the head, which is Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to. And the entire body, that's talking about the church body, will grow because that growth is provided by God. Let's look at John chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's what we're to do. We are to continue to grow in our relationship, our personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. It is he who provides the growth And it is He, through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that helps us mature in our faith. Verse 20, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees, such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Paul's saying we've been set free from all these man-made rules and there are so many religions and so many denominations that still continue to add all these additional rules, these requirements that you have to do in order to be saved. Paul's making it very clear. We've been freed from that. Our salvation is solely by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Verse 22, and he's talking about do not handle, do not taste, do not touch which all refer to things destined to perish with the using in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. He's saying, why would you do that? There's no benefit from the teaching of men. This asceticism, it may appear spiritual in that you're depriving yourself of things, but you're really just doing it to draw attention to yourself. It's not going to earn you anything. It's not going to earn you blessing. It's not going to earn you your salvation. We have been set free as Christians from man's man-made rules. Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. That's that asceticism I'm talking about. But he says, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So to wrap up what we've studied today, Paul is saying that false teaching, it's real, it's out there, it's a present danger. But study the Bible so you know when you're being told something that's non-biblical. You know, I personally, I have left two denominations because of false teaching in those denominations. And it took me a little while to sort it out, but I was able to listen to what I was hearing from the pulpit. And I said, you know what, that's not biblical. 
that is not biblical. And God put on my heart, I needed to seek out a different church both times. So pay attention to what you're being taught in your churches, because if it's not biblical and God places on your heart that you need to be somewhere else, you need to listen where God directs you. We're complete when we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We are fully forgiven. There's nothing more to add to it. That's what Paul is telling us. And we should flee from those who are trying to teach us some type of gospel that's faith plus something else that you have to do. Because you got no verses for that. I've given you plenty of verses just today that actually say the exact opposite. There isn't anything you can do to put God into a position to then owe you something like your salvation. When you do that, when you're saying it's faith plus something else, I got to do sacraments, I got to do this, I got to do these religious rituals, you're basically saying that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, they were great, but they just certainly weren't enough to get the job done. And he needs your help in order for you to gain your salvation. Well, that's totally wrong. And that's what Paul is discussing in our lesson today. Jesus Christ is God and his work that he did on our behalf is sufficient. It took care of our sin. It's not about man-made rules. It's not about religious rituals or traditions. It's all about our heart and our personal relationship with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then our obedience to him not to earn our salvation, but because we love him and because we appreciate what he's done for us. So I hope you'll give this some consideration as you consider your own faith. Have you truly given your heart to the Lord? Are you being taught things by various people or maybe perhaps even in your church, things that aren't biblical? Ask God to place you where he wants you to be. Don't just follow traditions just because they were traditions of your family and what have you. You need to listen to God and go where God tells you to go. And please study your Bible so you know when you're hearing truth and when you're being deceived by false teaching. That's why I always say, thank you, God, for giving us your word. It's all right here in this book. And if we'll just take the time to read and study this book, and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us, we will continue to grow in our faith and our personal relationship with the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. Larry would love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to Larry at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and Larry's weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. We hope you will join us next time as we continue our study.